This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, we're Yulin and Sritama, and we are back with another episode of GSAP Conversations. In this episode, we hear from Professor Mabel Wilson and Abraham Murrell, both alumni of the school. GSAP recently commissioned a group of alumni to report on the current state of internships in the architecture profession. This is our second podcast to explore this theme in more depth, following a conversation a few weeks ago between Violet Whitney and James Brillin. In this conversation, Abraham speaks with Professor Mabel Wilson about her own experiences. In addition to teaching at GSAP, she co-directs the school's Global Africa Lab, and she is also the Associate Director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Professor Wilson discussed her personal journey on her career. She interprets the inequity issues within the profession to be social, institutional, economical, and historical. You can find the full report called Internship and the Architectural Profession on the GSAP website. Thanks for listening. I'm Abraham Morell, a designer in New York City and an adjunct faculty member here at Columbia GSAP. I'm very excited to be here today with Mabel Wilson, an educator, designer, and author whose work focuses on history at the intersection of race, politics, memory, and the built environment. Mabel, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. So this series of podcasts on labor in the profession follows in the wake of a GSAP-funded research initiative that analyzed the current state of internships in the architecture profession. But I think before we get into that, I wanted to ask you just about your early career in the profession um, and how you got into your area of expertise. Um, My early career path was somewhat conventional and then um, really transformative when I became an academic and started asking questions. I worked at a very, very large architectural engineering firm in Princeton when I finished my undergrad. I have an undergraduate architecture degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went and worked in, I wouldn't, well, yeah, I could kind of say it's a boutique firm that's actually quite large in New York City. Um, and so I had kind of varied experiences um, in offices, and I have to say that my career path in offices, I was very lucky. I felt like I worked for firms that respected the need for my own education as an architect in terms of working and what I needed to, uh, but also in terms of pay. I was paid fairly, but I did have classmates who had experienced offices where, you know, they were not necessarily treated fairly um, Mm -hmm. and had had their own challenges. I would say the sort of intellectual awakening was when I I did my master's here at GSAP. I had great classmates who were not trained as architects, but who had, you know, studied critical theory, you know, who had read way more widely than I had and, you know, and talked about, you know, labor issues and organizing Mm -hmm. and what that meant. And, um, and I really didn't understand myself sort of as a worker until I did a PhD in American studies at NYU. And there were conversations around organizing student workers, uh, graduate students. Um, And we had a conference called Between Classes. And it was a conversation about understanding yourself as a worker. What does Mm -hmm. it mean to be a wage laborer? um, And how you have to understand yourself within the the market. And what does it mean for creatives to do that? And which creatives do it and which don't? And architects don't see themselves in that role. Right. 
And so I think one of the things, I mean, I also felt very similar uh, and, and privileged to be at uh, offices that always treated me well and paid me well. But I think one of the things that, that I wanted to talk about was people who don't have the opportunity to, to work for the offices that are not paying as well, right? I mean, I think, I think we've, seen, we've seen a lot recently, um, a lot of this like hashtag Arcashame about offices that are, are not paying their employees well. And I wanted to ask maybe if you could enlighten us a little bit about sort of the, the early parts of this profession and the kind of historical background and maybe how that leads to um, some of the things we experience today um, in terms of sort of unfair labor conditions. Um, I will say I'm not an expert in the uh-huh. history of the profession, although there's some interesting people who are, you know, have worked on that. Um, but, but I do like to say to my students that architecture is the Western, mm-hmm. is a Western yeah. discipline. It is the art of building. People build all over the world at all times, but it's a very particular process of building that really gets refined in the um, in the 19th century as both uh, discipline, as an academic discipline, and as a profession. Um, and it's professionalized. Right. Um, and it has to do with who can become educated, who can be hired, who can be credentialed. Um, and I don't know, it seems like at some point, the way in which the profession developed, it, I think it still maintained its tradition as a kind of gentlemanly pursuit. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Jefferson would be a perfect example. He was a gentleman. He was a polymath. You know, one of the first so-called, quote, architects. But he, wouldn't, he was never trained mm-hmm. at all uh, because there were no architecture schools. There were academies. And so, you know, that sense of where the architect belonged socially and class-wise often defined that. And, of course, over the 20th century, I mean, that changes radically um, with the proliferations of educational institutions, polytechniques, you know, and, the, and, and who starts to come into the profession, particularly women, were mm-hmm. a huge factor. But it seems that in architecture, unlike maybe parallel disciplines of medicine and law, the ways in which architects build clients, uh, how architects employ employees, aren't necessarily, I would say, commensurate often with the right. cost of that education and what it's necessary to survive. And it perhaps has become more exacerbated under globalization and neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's actually one of the things I have written down here is that um, some of the research that we were doing about the NCARB and the AIA is how basically the NCARB and the AIA professional bodies uh, differ from state licensing boards in the ways in which they define internships particularly. And while it kind of sounds like nitpicking around a title, um, I think there are a lot of important implications for the profession, things like barriers to entry, undervaluing the work of architects and abusive work conditions, or like you mentioned, pay that is incommensurate with other professions, such as like lawyers and doctors. And so I I actually wrote down some of NCARB's most recent diversity statistics. I don't know if you had a chance to look at this. I would love to hear these. It came out about two weeks ago, and I pulled um, a few of the kind of maybe some of the most upsetting. uh, Hot off the database. Yeah. uh, So on average, it takes 12.8 years to complete the core licensure requirements and become a licensed architect. I don't think that's a huge surprise to us. But... um, Non-white candidates are at least 25% more likely to stop pursuing licensure. 
and only 3% of licenses are awarded to licensure candidates who identify as black, African American, or Latino, and just for perspective, um, the United States is nearly 10 times that, right? Um, so it's pretty shocking, but I guess I wanted to ask if you had any, any thoughts on maybe why, why that could be, or what is, uh, I don't know if you've given thought to basically why the profession uh, is sort of like non-representative of the population of the United States. Um, I th yeah, I think there are a million factors that come into play. Um, there's a historian, Brian Norwood, who's been doing some interesting work. Um, not much of it's been published, but you could probably find talks of his that around the formation of the AIA and the fact of um, white Protestant males essentially, I mean, formed this organization and what does that mm -hmm. mean for the ways in which it was conceptualized, um, for example, which is, you know, a, a kind of a leading organization um, for architects. I think that it has a lot to do with the sort of social circles. That's what I mean. It's still a kind of gentlemanly who you know, mm -hmm. who you, mm -hmm. you know, whereas to some degree, everyone's kind of covered by the law. Everyone needs medical, and certainly everyone needs buildings, but who has access to build? Uh, and those resources are actually very limited. It's about power and right. the sort of histories of who was able to accumulate wealth and who was unable. And I'm sure if you kind of looked at statistics around wealth inequality, it would be very, very, very telling in terms of um, like why those numbers are so starkly mm -hmm. low. Yeah, and w one thing I've heard you speak about before in lectures and in some of your writing is the racialization of public space or of space in general. And I, I guess I don't think it's necessarily completely related to these issues within the profession, but do you think there are aspects of it that, that are related to that, or do you think it's mostly a political kind of conundrum? Um, I, in terms of race and um, space... Yeah, I think there are a number of, I think it's economics. I think it's, you know, like you have to only have to look at redlining to see. I, like right. Ta-Nehisi Coates, The Case for Reparations, which my students read last week, completely makes the case for why, you know, that, that, that is. I mean, you just, as a, as a black, you never are able to accumulate wealth. It's, it's virtually impossible because at every turn, someone's going to take a chunk because they know they have you where they can take money from. I mean, it's capital. It's just, it's predatory, essentially. And so when you, you don't have... You know, you can't get a loan from a bank uh, just simply because you're black. Not because you aren't educated or because you haven't worked hard, but because you're black, which was what happened to my father, actually, in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Not in the South, where he came from, but in the North. And he worked for uh, the Defense Department. He worked for the Pentagon, basically. He was college-educated, as my mother. But he could not get a loan in 1962 to build a house unless the white builder co-signed. And I still am mm -hmm. interested in how that actually worked and right. whether the builder got money Right, mm -hmm. which is money that did not go, you know, trickle down into us, you know, to us. But so, so this kind of constant extraction of wealth also produces those inequalities. So, it's institutional, it's economic, it's political, and so it's constantly removing who has the agency to actually affect the built environment. Property ownership's another mm -hmm. huge one. Like, if you own property, you can build, you can get, you know. That has constantly been, and, and I think Ta-Nehisi makes the case for how it's constantly, land was constantly stolen and continues to be stolen right. from African-Americans, like farmers. There are huge articles in The Atlantic and other publications recently about that. And that's a big driver of wealth. I, I really love his article because I think, and it's a, a case for reparations in The Atlantic, and I think it really 
brings a lot of clarity to this topic, and it's, I mean, it's concise and beautifully written, and I don't know if you've read his book, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power, but it's one of, it's sort of a compilation of his essays from uh, from his writings at the Atlantic over over the time during the Obama administration and how things, uh, I guess, since Obama's administration have felt as if they're falling back on previous times with obviously with uh, racial issues in the United States. Um, and I actually know that you're you're working on a project uh, at the University of Virginia that tries to deal with some of this. Do you think you could? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, and I, I can say that I met Tanahisi before <laughs> he wrote that, and in uh-huh. fact, he was sort of thinking about that. We were both on a residency um, mm-hmm. several years ago, and you know, he was kind of interested in sort of picking my brain. We were talking actually a lot about Detroit because um, I was interested in Detroit at the time, and so yeah, I mean, so I think he's kind of looking toward archi- what architects are writing mm-hmm. to try to think about these things. Uh, because he talks about the suburbs. He talks about, you know, like, what does it mean when you cannot fully own a home um, and have that American dream? Uh, so I do think that architecture, the voices coming out of architecture can have, have an impact. The project I'm working at the University of Virginia, where I was an architecture student as an undergrad, um, is with uh, Mijin Yoon and Eric Howler in Boston, and Greg Bleem, who's a landscape architect in um, Charlottesville, Frank Dukes, who's an environmental mediator, and Eto Otetigbe, who's an artist in Brooklyn. And we're the sort of core team, but of course there are many other people who are engaged in the, the project, extraordinary um, architects at UVA who are the, you know, the university's architect. And it, and it really was a kind of community project in the sense that a lot of people um, opened up a space where we can actually have a conversation around what would it mean to remember the enslaved Africans who actually built and also maintained the lives of the early students and faculty at the university. But, you know, in many ways it was a challenging project because the history was just unknown. Mm-hmm. So how do you build a monument to something that is in the process of discovery? Um, and that, um, you know, those stories, those narratives just they don't have a cadence they don't so so how do you find what that cadence is in order to sort of respond to it architecturally right yeah and I wanted to ask about another piece of your work I'm not sure if it's uh I think it's still ongoing but uh a group that you helped form here at Columbia who builds your architecture examines the links between labor architecture and the global networks that form around building buildings and so I kind of I wanted to ask you to apply some of that same uh, thinking uh, that you do for who builds your architecture to who designs your architecture um, and see if you could, uh, I don't know, help us try to understand how uh, the labor forces that work within, within architecture actually, actually affect the built environment. In terms of the, the project of who builds your architecture, um, which was response to the exploitation of migrant workers, construction workers in the Middle East, in um, Abu Dhabi, uh, Doha, uh, elsewhere. And it was Gulf labor who really started um, or made visible this, this question. But we noticed there were no architects responding. And so Kadambari Bakhtri, who's a professor at Barnard, and I had a conversation one evening over dinner. And we kept wondering, why aren't architects doing this? And we had one event. Um, at the new school, and it didn't answer any questions. And in fact, it was very hard to get architects to talk about the labor part, because 
quite rightly, many of them just said, that's not our contract, right? There was a firewall. Right. And the fact that that wasn't recognized really led to you know, a, a, an attempt to make visible those relationships. And we were joined by some great then students uh, here at GSAB, Lindsay Rickstrom, Jordan Carver, Laura Diamond Dixit, Tiffany Rattray. Um, and we just started having conversations about it, but to also use the tools of architecture to make visible those relationships that people claim didn't exist. And so I would just say, in, in terms of sort of understanding the invisible labor of the designer, is like, what are the kinds of tools that could show and make visible where that labor is and why it's disappeared? Like, how do you make visible... Mm-hmm. You know, and we diagrammed it, we mapped it, we used reports from human rights agencies to try to understand, we interviewed people. Um, so we tried the use of tools of architecture to make visible those labor relationships. And I think you could probably launch a similar um, visual project in order to do that, because I know you've done this amazing report, but I'm wondering if there's another way to also kind of make legible why that labor remains hidden in the, in the process. And part of it is this idea of the individual genius of the single person at the top right. of the firm, right? Um, which, again, comes from the idea of the polymath, right? The, the brilliant person who's, you know, doing the creative, the creative labor. But as we all know, it's, it takes a, you know, it, it's a lot. It's like saying a movie's just made by the director. And we all know, because of the credits, that's never the case. Right. But those workers are unionized. <laughs> uh-huh. And they see themselves as wage laborers and that their, their craft and their technical abilities have to be acknowledged. Can and what you... if architects did that? You know, if we had scrolling, we're doing an exhibition that's opening up the Boston Architecture Center. And we insisted that as part of the description of our project that we also acknowledge those people who helped put up the show. Mm-hmm. Are you a member of the architecture lobby in New York? I am a member of the architecture. Yeah. I'm on the board of the architecture. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so I, maybe you can help uh, help bring some clarity to the idea of unionization within the profession. I know that's something that the architecture lobby has been pushing for. That and I guess cooperatives as well. Um, so can you describe that? Yeah. I mean, I could say two things. I think the kernel of the architecture lobby, which was sort of pushed by Peggy Deemer, came out of she was one of the she was the person on our first panel at the new school and and and. Um, Peggy kept beseeching everyone, how are architects going to understand labor halfway around the world when they have such bad labor practices in their offices? You know, and she kept saying that again and again, like architects don't understand labor. Um, Like how can we be advocates for social justice if we, if some of our offices are exploitative? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think out of that sort of came the lobby, right? And, and so I think that that was a really, um, a kind of important you know, a kind of important question around that, that issue. And what was the, the other part of the question was? Uh, unionization. Unionization. Yeah, I think it's, it's organic that you have to understand yourself as a worker and that what you're doing is you're selling your labor on a market. Right. Um, Andrew Ross's No Collar, I think, is a really good book because it talks about the early tech years and the ways in which a lot of artists were involved in the development of websites, and they mm-hmm. constantly saw themselves as artists, not workers. So they were selling their labor for cheap. And one of the examples he uses are musicians. Musicians are organized. You know, the ones that are playing on Broadway and um, in Philharmonics, they have, they have unions and they're organized and they have to get paid a certain rate and they can't work X number of hours. And, and so there are actual models out there for how you unionize creatives. But often, this idea, Andrew would say it's the myth of the bohemian. 
mm-hmm. you know, that you see yourself as this brilliant genius, that, you know, but fundamentally you are selling your intellectual capital on the market and what is its value. And oftentimes organizing means that you're not an individual, but you see yourself collective right. and that you see that there is a collective, um, there's an advantage, particularly amongst a corporation, corporate body. Um, it's the corporate body versus an individual versus a corporate body versus a, a union. And it's, it's a different way in which that collective, um, collective bargaining, you have, you have leverage. Right. Well, I think, I think one of the problems I often hear people talk about is architecture as a profession is like a, a labor of love, right? Like we, we love it so much that we, we want to work these long hours. I know Peggy Deemer has talked about it as work aphasia, um, but I think, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for me because on the one hand, I, I, and I know a lot of my colleagues and peers do love architecture and we sometimes love working late hours, but I think it does, I, I believe in a lot of ways it does undervalue the profession and I don't know if you have anything to add to that or I guess I could ask a sort of a, a concluding question, what could our profession do to tackle underpayment or labor exploitation or the lack of diversity. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, competitions. Let's give our ideas away for free. Right. Uh, right I mean, that's course. one. I had a, <laughs> had a boyfriend once was like, you're doing all this work for what? And you're not getting paid. Right. You know, or if you get paid, I worked on competitions where we were paid, but it was like maybe 10% of the total cost. Right. But offices have to be willing to make that investment on the chance that they might get yeah, the project. Yeah, for speculation, of course. Yeah, and that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so, of course, you have to be able to float that kind of money, right? Right. But if you don't have that money to begin with historically, you're not going to be able to do it. And right. that's why you have low numbers, I think, of minorities in the field. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot in which, yeah, I mean, people really can see themselves as creative geniuses because they have the financial wherewithal to do right. that versus the reality of what you're doing. It's, it's work. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad we got to that kind of last point because I think that was, was one of my hopes in sitting down for this conversation is that we would start to talk about those things. Um, I also, I want to just give like one Final plug to another conversation that we're going to have here at uh, GSAP Conversations with Peggy Deemer, um, who, like you said, helped found the architecture lobby. And I think we'll get into a lot more of those conversations about unionization and cooperatives and some of the other, uh, some of the rest of the mission that the architecture lobby has. So, Mabel, thank you so much for sitting down. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to. No, my pleasure. And I think you guys are doing really great work. And um, I'm glad the podcast will exist because more people are going to know about these issues. So thank you for inviting me. Okay. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.